If Hollywood had a successful, iconoclastic director known for questioning the mainstream American narrative, something many view as a contradiction in terms, it might very well be Oliver Stone. With a career spanning over 40 years as a screenwriter and director, Stone has covered topics such as the drug trade in Scarface, overseas military intervention with Platoon and Salvador, and financial greed with Wall Street. His political biopics remain controversial with many in the establishment as they question the very legitimacy of the American world order. Tonight, we are joined by Harry Flashman, a writer for the American Sun, to discuss this prolific filmmaker. Well, I'm not a crook. I burn everything I've got. Military I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time to hear Hello and welcome to the show. Today we are going to be doing one of our least requested content, and that is we're going to talk about filmmaking, something that I like to talk about, and I know that some people enjoy this content, and its subject today will be everyone's favorite boomer Jew filmmaker, Oliver <laughs> So we have a guest on to join us, and his name is Harry. Harry, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, thank you, Nick. Um, uh, I'm going by Harry Flashman. Uh, <laughs> but uh, basically, Oliver Stone to me, uh, he has so many films that I, you know, that are just part. I'm a '90s kid, and. Um, in kind of a sick, twisted way of my uh, upbringing was when I, I think I was about 13 or 14, and I, I uh, saw JFK. And honestly, JFK, that film was probably my first, you know, to use a cliche, was one of my first red pills that I had politically. And from that point, you know, I got into different uh, films that he made, you know, and I, I really enjoyed uh, Platoon. I think Platoon is the best Vietnam War movie ever made. Uh, and I think that uh, he has a couple other films that are really good. And he has some, he has at least, in my opinion, he has at least five films that are definitely worth watching. And a couple of them are really good. And uh, I thought I, I did an article uh, uh, about his memoir. I read his memoir, Chasing the Light. It's a good memoir, and I think that uh, if you're interested in Oliver Stone at all, check out the memoir. Well, he um, he became familiar to me when I, I just saw, uh, I think I saw probably Wall Street before anything else, and I was sort of a Alex P. Keaton type growing up, and sort of why I chose my uh, online handle as Adam Smith. It's sort of a little tongue in cheek, but uh, I was, I remember watching it with a buddy of mine who uh, we both uh, 
both liked, you know, stock markets and real estate stuff. And so we thought that'd be a fun movie. And I didn't know what to expect, but <clears throat> obviously Michael Douglas stole the show and it was basically, uh, that's why he got the Academy Award for it. But I, I was so interested in the movie that I did watch sort of the behind the scenes and the director's cuts and the director's commentary. And then I got to know who Oliver Stone was. And I remember him talking about his father working on Wall Street. And he uh, he also mentioned that in the documentary, um, I believe, uh, Chasing the Light. I, I watched an interview of him talking about that. And he brought up how his father was very influential to him because he was um, he was sort of this Rockefeller Republican slash Eisenhower type guy, 1950s era, sort of, um, if you're familiar with Warren Buffett, his father was sort of like this, a very honest person who believed in the system. I think that's the sort of key emphasis here. And he was ultimately betrayed by it um, in many ways by not really being rewarded for his uh, depth of loyalty. He he did well, probably more by his own merits, but the system, system itself didn't really give him any anything other than letting him just sort of do his thing. But <clears throat> I think that movie demonstrated the the shifts in the generations as you know the honest, hardworking uh, war generation and their kids they they got obsessed with money. And <clears throat> that's really not what necessarily Oliver Stone's movies are generally about. He does more. I think foreign policy films, uh, generally, if you really look at the, the whole sweep of his, uh, Vietnam era stuff, uh, the Kennedy stuff, a lot of it is really about big politics, but I was always more interested in the economics and that's how I got hooked on him. But then I learned he wrote, um, or he, he had a big part in writing Scarface. And, uh, so I was very impressed very quickly yeah. by Oliver Stone. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's very prolific and he's been all over the place. However, he also mentions in his uh, interview about his memoir, which is the chasing the light. Um, he, he kind of slowed down quite a bit, um, after basically nine 11. And I think it was a shock to him as it was to many of us, I think on this show in his view of America, while he, he was critical of America prior to that, you know, if you look in JFK, he's very critical of things like the deep state and he doesn't trust the media. Um, after nine 11, he really started seeing the, uh, the empire for however evil it may have been before. Uh, it was somewhat competent, but I think he started seeing it. It's just the bolts flying off the seams at that point. And he just kind of was scratching his head and he, so he shifted to documentaries. So <clears throat> you guys know more about the details, but that's just kind of me being the non cinephile of the group's impression. I've always kind of liked him, but yeah, he kind of slowed down. Well, you know, Adam, we've actually done an episode before on an Oliver Stone film. Do you know what episode that was? Um, I don't remember. It was recently Miley Massacre one, right? Huh. That was him? Nope. The uh, 1996 musical Evita. What? Oh, yeah. oh, he did God. that? Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah, he wrote that. Oh, he yes. wrote it. Okay. He wrote he it. Oh, he, did, he didn't direct it, but he wrote it. Okay. Well, Not the songs. Not... <laughs> okay, I guess I can half forgive him then. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing about, I mean, what Adam, when you're saying about Wall Street, the cool thing about, um, I, to part of me, you know, I, I don't know why, but I have this weird fixation with um, high finance and Wall Street type of movies, even if they're not that good, like Boiler Room and Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Boiler Room's fun. excellent. Yeah, they're good. They're good in, a, in a, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, even though it's not a Wall Street type movie, it's like, you know, that is real a, a real lesson in how psychologically demoralizing it can be to suck at your job. And <laughs> that made, made me have so much empathy for these guys who spam call me. I feel so bad for them now. <laughs> yeah, I, I loosely connect. brass balls. Yeah, brass balls, Adam. No, man, I think we've all been in there at one point in our life where we just, you just can't make it work. It's, it's tough. And the thing about wall street is that, you know, it's like, you're, you're right about his dad being connected to that. And, you know, he, he did, I think you, you, uh, accurately kind of described from his memoir, you know, from Oliver Stone's own words, how he would describe his dad. You nailed it. I mean, He's type of kind of Rockefeller Eisenhower type of Republican, and he bought into the kind of standard narrative of American history. And I also think that, um, you know, Oliver Stone basically the whole time, you know, that his film career and and him growing up, he's he's kind of dealing with his experiences with Vietnam. It's always in the background and but also looking at the the promises of the you know the American dream and seeing it kind of disintegrate across his lifetime. And even though he's not one of, you know, so-called our guys or, you know, a, a dissonant right figure, I think he's useful in um, if you're trying to approach some understanding of, you know, the American dream and American history and kind of figure out, what is really at the bottom of things he's getting at it. And yeah. it's why right-wing people like Oliver Stone, it's not the only, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. I think that a lot of the, uh, all the people on this call and also people listening, you might not like a lot of, a lot of Oliver Stone movies, but I bet you there's one that you like. I, I think he understands where the good side, at least, or the good natured and good intention side of, the right of the political spectrum is coming from because of his father. I mean, and Warren Buffett too. Like again, it, his, their dads remind me so similarly. And his father actually was a stockbroker too. That's kind of funny. Uh, but they, um, they're both Democrats basically, but they don't Warren Buffett, maybe a little bit more, but they don't really go super hard on the right. Like a lot of their peers in, the sort of liberal spheres do for whatever reason, maybe their upbringing was different. Maybe their father was, you know, some drug addict hippie. I, I don't, I don't know, but their fathers weren't. And so I think there's a little bit more understanding there for some reason. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, he, the thing that strikes me about stone is there's kind of this uh, cliche that the best movies, it's like, well, it's not really about like World War II or Vietnam or whatever the setting is. It's about the story and 
that's just the backdrop in which these these characters take place. And it, it is very cliched because like clearly the selling points of something like Wall Street or JFK is not like, yeah, you know, that that prosecutor, like that's a really great character. Like it's interesting, but it's it's kind of this nice little melding where the background is actually uh, kind of the star of the show. Like you can't even remember what the name is of the the guy in the uh, the Turkish prison in Midnight Express, but you can remember like you know the the heart palpitations and the sweating and etc. As he's like trying to weasel his way through customs with a brick of hash, and when you when you put that sort of thing on a screen, like it's so easy to to kind of let that setting dominate to the exclusion of the story. But I think that generally he, he strikes a really good uh, balance of like, there's enough of both of those things that it, the main character is the sort of setting, but it's uh, intriguing because it's focused via this lens of like, usually a fairly, a uh, reasonably written actual plot characters, etc., with the exception of Savages. <laughs> yeah, he's done. He's that I'll movie admit, is trash. He, he's done some bad movies lately. Uh, but uh, yeah, for I, I think um, Oliver Stone's. Um, you know, he. It's hard for a director to. I mean, let's be honest. How many directors can make ten good movies? Almost none, right? How many directors can make five good movies? Almost none. Uh, but I think the 80s and 90s were, you know, his time to shine. And, you know. Well, to your point, Hank, he did manage to, he has the accomplishment of making the only football movie I ever liked. Oh, I was wondering if Nick was going to like that one. I, is that any like given little, Sunday? They just can't even into the, the football thing. What is there it? have been a few... There have been a like one. a few sports, mostly documentaries, where it's like, actually, this is kind of interesting. And, you know, yeah. sports gambling movies uh, right. can be very Money good. Ball. Yeah, but I, I just, you know. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Al Pacino's speech at the end of that movie makes makes the whole movie worth it. Oh, it is Any Given Sunday. If, okay. If you haven't seen yeah. if you haven't seen it, yeah, watch It's Any Given Sunday. Watch that on YouTube if... Uh, yeah, if nothing that's, else. That's that's excellent. Yeah, scene. excellent speech. Yeah, and and he Oliver Stone in, in his he's kind of harsh on actors. You know, in his memoir, you know, he kind of he doesn't in his book he doesn't like trash actors, but he makes it plain like you know they're just the help. Is, yeah, this actor's overplaying it. This actor just wanted to just grab any uh, scene time that he could get. Uh, like he was in the memoir, he talked about Midnight Express, how uh, the actor that played the guy's dad was like just overacting like horribly. <laughs> and, but, um, you know, in that movie, he was just a screenwriter. He wasn't a director. And um, to his credit, you know, he he gives Al Pacino a lot of, you know, he, you can tell he he really likes Al Pacino. Al Pacino was going to actually be initially uh, in in uh i think it was um born on the fourth of july 
but Al Pacino was too old for that role at that time. And some other things happened behind the scenes that, you know, basically led to Al Pacino not being in that film, but he definitely enjoys some Al Pacino. Say that. <laughs> yeah. With directors in general, I think, I think a lot my of favorite people Go ahead. don't realize the extent to which it's kind of a, a managerial role. Like theoretically the producer is kind of, you know, he's giving you the parts that you're supposed to work with. He's setting up, okay, I've got like this crew of guys kind of to pick from. I've got this script. I've got these actors in mind. Like if you use this guy, I've got the financing hooked up. But then like a director ends up being in charge of what's now, I mean, you contemplate the number of, uh, the number of companies that have annual budgets uh, in the tens of millions of dollars range and then, you know, revenues of uh, some multiple of that. And that's, that's your average Hollywood production now, especially once you start talking, you know, brand name talent uh, like Oliver Stone. And I think, you know, it, it's, you, you have to read some of these books about them and uh, mostly auto autobiographical like memoir type stuff and they very rarely get into kind of the nitty-gritty day-to-day of what they actually do like setting up the production schedule like figuring out how much leeway they have with the the resources that are available to them i don't know um stone just by virtue of his volume like he's one of the you know, of the kind of big names where a director is actually recognizable by the general public, he's got to be in the top like 5% of just the raw output there. So I, don't know, I find that interesting, I guess, that he's just like, besides the artistic vision, he's just in a very banal sense, good at his job. Yeah, in the in the memoir, you know, he does talk about kind of the minutia of writing, you know, and how it, he has to like, you know, lock himself in the room. Essentially, he has some quote like, you know, all of writing is just, you know, resigning yourself to sitting in a chair. You know, <laughs> it's like just to get the job done. And and then he does do some some kind of talk about the their intersection of like the producers the the money men the studios dealing with the actors and then dealing with the environment of the of the the shot itself like trying to get the film done at whatever location you're doing but the good thing about the memoir is that it doesn't it's definitely not like all about that or boring you know and he also narrates his memoir um if you get the audible version of it it's quite good so he, he gives he gives a good uh kind of you know if you're not like a cinephile um you you can enjoy the the memoir without you know geeking out about you know the <laughs> all the little intricacies of how a movie's made but it gives you enough to get an understanding of it i heard uh, i heard he actually stopped at platoon which in many ways for a filmmaker winning the academy award perhaps is his pinnacle but I thought that was a little bit cowardly. I mean, you yeah. know, you need to sh- demonstrate. I mean, that's been, it's been a long time. I mean, it's been over <laughs> 30 years, you know. Why don't you teach us uh, or tell us at least about 
your experiences and what you've learned. I mean, you can gain a lot of wisdom in that time. So I was surprised he, he said he did that. Yeah, I hope he, I, I said so in the article I wrote for American Sun, like, I think that um, uh, about his memoir, I hope he does write a, you know, a part two or another memoir about later on because, you know, we'll get to it later, but, you know, JFK and Nixon are definitely worth, you know, talking about and his thought process behind that and what was going on and all that stuff is definitely interesting, I, I would imagine. Um, and for me, I mean, I, I think that it, it, it makes sense um, I, to talk about, like, to just kind of get into the Vietnam era because I feel like that predominated uh, his career, but it, it also, you know, from reading the memoir, it that's, it, he still deals with it. I think he's like 74 years old and, at the, you know, he, it, it, it very much kind of, uh, I don't know, it, it, it defined him as a person and as a director in a lot of ways. And uh, he, you know, just for the audience's sake, um, a little biographical information I, I think is due. Uh, he basically, um, he was in college and he famously, you know, he, he went to, uh, you know, Ivy league school and he was uh, with this in the same class, even though he didn't really rub shoulders with uh, Bush, he was in that same class and he, um, he, you know, it was, he, to his credit, doesn't make it seem like he, dropped out to be in the Vietnam war, like some, you know, raging patriot, you know, patriot or something. He basically was just disillusioned with a lot of things uh, on a personal level. You know, his mom and dad had divorced and his dad was Jewish, but his mom was French and his dad was in world war two, but he didn't serve any combat experience during world war two. And his, you know, he brings back a spear bride, if you will, uh, this French woman who, you know, his Oliver Stone basically spends a lot of time in his memoir talking about, you know, his, the kind of family dynamics and kind of being very struck by the fact that their marriage fell apart. And when that happened, he just couldn't deal with it uh, psychologically in a lot of ways. And he, drops out of school and he goes to Vietnam before he's a soldier to be a teacher, like to teach English. People do this type of thing all the time now. And uh, they go to, you know, whatever, Korea. Uh, I have a friend that, you know, went to South Korea and taught English for a year and just hung out in Seoul or whatever. Uh, well, at this point in the um, early 60s, uh, Stone is actually, Oliver Stone went to uh, Vietnam. And during this time, you have it was right at the time of DMV, uh, the dictator of South Vietnam was, you know, before he was, uh, you know, executed and assassinated. Uh, so you're talking like, I think, 63. And he goes to Vietnam and he, he kind of had he says that things were kind of tumultuous a little bit in the background in Vietnam at, at this point. But he could have fun. He could drive around in his scooter, you know, and hang out. And he basically taught English classes. And then he did that for about six months. And then he just like basically went around and explored and had adventures doing whatever, <laughs> even went to Cambodia apparently. Um, and then came back and he was in the, 
he joined the uh, Merchant Marines, which is really strange kind of thing that he just did whimsically. And he uh, takes a voyage across the Pacific and he's like working, you know, as a basically like you know, cleaning the engines type of thing on this ship. And he makes his way back to America. Um, and then at that point, um, when he gets back home, you know, he still kind of doesn't know what to do and everything like that. And he, um, you know, he basically decides to go um, back into school. So he, he goes back into college and then he drops out again. And that's when he joins uh, to get in the army. And he does it kind of like, because he just doesn't, he still hasn't found himself. He doesn't, you know, his, his kind of family life is in disorder. His mom and dad are divorced. Um, and that's kind of sets the stage for him uh, joining, the, you know, becoming an enlisted man. And he makes a point of not being, he could have went to officer training school. He turns that down. He just wants to be a private. He just wants to be enlisted. Doesn't want to have the responsibility and so on. And he also uh, figured like, why not do it instead of get drafted, instead of being drafted. Uh, and I think that say what you want about, you know, liberals and, you know, idealists and stuff like that. You know, he criticizes the Vietnam War and, and American imperialism through his, his entire career. But the man actually was in combat and he was in combat in like the worst time of the Vietnam War. Like, I believe, uh, 60, the end of 67 through 68. Yeah, I think he's earned the right to criticize it. So what did you guys think about um, the movie Platoon? I've only seen it once, but a it's very good. World War movie. Sorry, who who came? What, what, what was that, Hank? Sorry, Hank. What you? I said what? I, I remain convinced it's impossible to make an anti-war war movie, but right. I think it works. Yeah. Well, I I, I don't actually I, want war movies to be anti-war. I'm okay with like war movies, full stop. Yeah. Well, the only part of it that. Uh, really got um i don't know syrupy uh, he's kind of laying it on thick was i, I remember william willem it's not william of course willem uh strange parents right there uh dafo getting uh mutilated as the helicopter floats away as you know, the, the fire bombs are going off around him it's very cinematic of course um but i mean the rest of it just seemed like the soldiers were behaving as they they had to in a bad situation i guess there was that that night scene where they were fighting and there's uh there's like a a, a swastika tank or something and uh, which is actually a thing it wasn't like made up by him i think they did that stuff and they used to do confederate stuff and it was not uh not unusual but the um i don't know the just the, the behavior of the soldiers seemed to be somewhat uh I don't know, accurate. I wasn't there, but it didn't seem like he was preaching too much with that. So what part of it is anti-war, I guess, is my question. I mean, the whole... Well, as for anti-war, Gallipoli is the best one. Yeah, that's fair. That holds up. I mean, a lot of the... Well, that's... Non, I guess Oliver Stone war movies are are way, way out of scope here. But uh, 
I don't know. It, it honestly, of the kind of between Full Metal Jacket, Apocalypse Now, and Platoon, Platoon is just my least favorite of those three. Uh, just because I think, and it's actually the the latest uh, produced of those, uh, if I am correct uh, in my dates here. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. But it, you know, the a lot of the kind of Vietnam movie tropes and the kind of zeitgeist I think was kind of established uh, by the time that Platoon uh, came out. Like I was. Uh, too young to be watching Platoon uh, at the time at which uh, Platoon actually came out. So I can't speak to kind of the meta level of the cultural zeitgeist uh, that was formed by previous Vietnam movies. But uh, I don't know, for kind of the aesthetic quality, not because like a movie has to say something, uh, I just didn't find it as enjoyable in terms of like the uh, just the imagery, the aesthetic components uh, as those other two. Like, I think there's a lot more kind of iconic, uh, iconic shots, characters, um, set pieces in those other two than Platoon. And the whole like, you know, uh, Lieutenant What's-His-Name getting crucified bit at the end is like, all right. Fine, I see what you're doing there. No, the, the interesting thing about um, it's about, it's certainly no thin red line. <laughs> the interesting thing about um, about it is that you know Sergeant Barnes and Sergeant Elias, you know this kind of back and forth, right? That permeates throughout the film. Is you you these characters are actually based on real people. Uh, in his life now, obviously, a lot of it's dramatized and exaggerated, uh, and they also were not in the same platoon, according to Oliver Stone. It, it was like basically Elias was, uh, was a character that he had on in one unit, and he got transferred to another unit, and Sergeant Barnes was a was an amalgamation. It was a character uh, from this other unit that he was a part of because Oliver Stone was in I think three different units during his tour, and. So Elias and Barnes were never together. So in his imagination, he, the film is basically it playing out as if they were in the same platoon and what would happen. Now, uh, I think that um, Apocalypse Now and Deer Hunter, okay, Deer Hunter 1 was a big time in uh, 1978. I think it didn't it win the Academy Award that year? I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which was the same year as Midnight Express came out. Yeah, one sounds right. Yeah, that was like yeah, Michael Chimino or something like that, or I think yeah. as the director. It, and so already we're seeing, you know, it's right that it was in, you know, Platoon came out in, in 1986, and he had been writing it for a long time. So you know, he had wanted it to be a movie way before 1986, but you know, for different reasons, it didn't get made. And Hank's right that if you're, if you want a movie to be kind of uh, like a, a full stop war movie, it's kind of the antithesis of that type of movie, right? It's very kind of introspective. It's about Charlie Sheen's character, which is more like Charlie Sheen's character is really what um, Oliver Stone 
you know, uh, saw himself as like he gets nicked in the neck by shrapnel or whatever that happened to Oliver Stone in real life. Um, and then it kind of plays off this dynamic of these two kind of larger than life characters, at least in Oliver's mind of these two sergeants. And I think that this is where the, the kind of, uh, interesting aspect of the movie is for me and why I say it's my favorite Vietnam war movie, because in, you know, in every type of platoon you'll hear from guys that were actually in the army. Usually there's like a mother sergeant and a dad sergeant. And, uh, you know, Elias is kind of like the mother sergeant that takes care of the people, you know, the guys and Sergeant Barnes is like the hard ass. Right. Well, you know, and, and beyond that, um, Sergeant Barnes, you know, is kind of what what you need to be for the most part to get through a war. I think we can, you know, and agree that like if you are too introspective and too in the clouds thinking about whatever, you're just going to end up dead. And Elias, you know, based on a real character, you know, he wasn't just this guy that was like this Christ-like figure or something uh, necessarily. He was the type of guy that was trying to maintain some semblance of humanity during war, which is paradoxical, I know, but these guys existed. And I think that that, that really um, speaks to the kind of usefulness and realness of, of a film like Platoon. It's not that like it's going to be, you know, shoot them up, uh, action-packed awesomeness, you know, from start to finish. It's that like uh, Nick mentioned, it's not really as good as a thin red line, but it's approaching that type of, I would compare it to like a thin red line. I think that's a fairly good comparison. And, you know, Charlie Sheen's character is like stuck between, you know, in this world where he can't, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. He's young, just like Oliver Stone was at the time. And he's stuck in this fucking war and he's like, you know, wants to do the right thing, doesn't know what, what's the right thing. And it kind of shows you the kind of chaos and just schizophrenic nature of why we were there in the first place, you know? And I think that's why the, the movie uh, is worth watching. I think it was the first Stone movie Wait. I saw. Um, either that or Scarface, but he didn't direct Scarface. <laughs> I remember Wall Street is my uh, jam. I remember my dad getting it. Yeah. I know Adam has some things to say about Wall Street. It was very uh, influential on me, probably in a bad way. I mean, as I get older, I try to relate more to the intended lessons of the film. But like many young men in America, where there's no longer an industrial base and you're left with for an aspirational model to go for. You look at these uh, ultra wealthy finance types and you're like, well, I guess that's where smart people are. It's definitely not in Washington. So uh, yeah, it, it, like Gordon Gecko is one of these very seductive characters that uh, obviously was a big presence on screen again for the Academy Award being some proof of that. Um, and I, I will agree that it was an incredible performance by Michael Douglas, but in many ways it is sort of what's wrong with America is that this type of, uh, personality is rewarded and the Charlie Sheen's dad, Martin Sheen's characters, uh, uh, 
performance in life is, is unrewarded. And he's basically left uh, sort of a crippled man who has a son who doesn't look up to him and uh, ultimately goes back to him, which I think is the lesson of the movie to go to people who are honest and doing productive work rather than extractive uh, parasitical work like Gordon Gecko was essentially doing. Um, but you know, it, it's just, it's, I think it's an honest portrayal of the eighties and I think frankly America since then. So I, I think it's an important movie and it definitely is very influential on a lot of young men, I think still to this day. Yeah. I knew a lot of people who are like, all right, let's do that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is what I mean by, uh, the, uh, the background. I don't think this was the effect he had in mind. Well, I mean, like, no, but if he really didn't want Douglas to be so good, you know, he could have just told him to stop. If you, if you make, like, if you make a movie like wall street and you're like, I mean, there's two ways that you can go about this. The contemporary way to go about this is you just make everything so uh, ham-handed and over-the-top and drawing on previous uh, moral prejudices uh, that your audience holds that you're, you're just beating them over the head with what they're supposed to do. This is, this is like the whole balcony speech thing. I forget which of the shit tier, uh, Cape shit, star Wars movies, but it's like, okay, well, you've got to have the guy make a giant speech from the balcony triumph of the will style with like lots of incoherent statements about how order will be restored to the get like, so, you know, he's a bad guy. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, now I know what I'm supposed to think about this. And so I can watch the things blow up. But if you don't do that, like the reason that they do do that for most contemporary cinema is because that's effective in cultivating that aesthetic effect and conveying any sort of nuance naturally lends itself to thinking about like, okay, well, what's actually going on here? Or just kind of the uh, the purely aesthetic, like, who looks cool in this situation? Like, villains are cool, which is why they do the beating over the head with the, like, no, that's Hitler. That's, that's the bad guy. There's nothing cool about good-looking uniforms. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't... Like you can you can say like well I wanted to convey whatever but if you do it in a aesthetic context where like you're giving the villain a lot of good lines uh, then that presents a certain amount of attraction to just like that scenery not even like I want to be Gordon Gecko I want to be Bud Fox but like this is an interesting world. It's the same way, like, you know, Scarface. Everybody's like, well, you know, how, how difficult would it be, hypothetically? Like, <laughs> well, the, I don't <laughs> I mean, know what even... it is in the African-American community, but they love that shit. And, it, you know, talk about an influence on young black males' lives. I don't think there's any other movie that has had a stronger impact on... I mean, rappers talk about it constantly. But how they would watch Scarface and just dream about being Shit, like, some Cuban I, I immigrant, which a, never made any sense to me. But apparently it had a huge effect. 
I bet there is a not insignificant coterie of people who watched JFK and was like, you know, Umbrella Man, not such a bad career. <laughs> it's like they're up to a lot of cool stuff. They've got their shit together. Nobody really even figured it out in the end. Like, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to play about. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like when I say Wall Street was my jam, it's like, yeah, this is this is a intriguing, even though like the the plot is kind of gobbledygook and like a lot of the at some point, Oliver Stone just kind of like gave up um, with kind of the technical aspect of like how everybody's actually making money and uh, just had a bunch of stuff that didn't make any sense. But <laughs> ne nevertheless, it's like this is interesting. This is like a arena of uh, human competition that I did not previously realize was a thing um, where people are sort of uh, competing by their ability to evaluate these symbolic representations of value. Uh, it was intriguing uh, for a, uh, you know, N year old uh, tiny Hank so, yeah, I, I like Wall Street. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, Wolf of Wall Street is like a, is like the 21st century version of, you know, Wall Street. You know, it plays upon those same things. It's like you look at, um, you know, you want to have a fun time. It, oh, it looks like this guy's having a good time. It looks like all of his buddies are having a good time doing some financial stuff that I don't really understand. But, uh, you know, they're making money and uh, they're, you know, having this larger than life, you know, just party. And um, a little uh, aside uh, with um, Wall Street and kind of that lifestyle and stuff, um, Oliver Stone, basically, when he when he was at the Golden Globes for um, the 78 awards, and he was pretty sure that he was going to get um, something for Midnight Express, he says that he was you know, in the, he was in the bathroom stalls doing Coke and Quaaludes with the, the actor and the actor that played the lead role and, um, and the, the guy's book that it's based on the actual guy that went through all that Turkish shit. Uh, he, you know, they were getting all high and stuff, uh, before it was like a three and a half hour thing before he made a speech and he made this, you know, once he gets the award, he makes this speech and, you might even be able to find it on YouTube, but he basically, you know, he was going, you know, he was just rambling, you know, at some point and Chevy Chase comes on to like scoot him off the uh, floor <laughs> to end. It was pretty funny. Yeah, it definitely helps to explain his uh, his volume of output in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> I think another thing that it got well was kind of kneeling at the uh, the aspirational quality like yuppies existed as a thing people were even at the time talking about yuppies but the uh, the bud fox character progression there like kind of acquiring all of the uh, objects of the design uh including some like kind of weird and dated ones like there's a there's this scene after he's like Got like okay, check. Got the got the girlfriend. Check. Got the uh, the nice car. Check. Got the uh, the nice apartment. And they're making dinner, and yeah. there's this really weird like '80s 
uh, carb extravaganza where it's like oh, pasta sushi on sushi on top of pasta gourmet pasta was a thing back then <laughs> yeah out of, like out homemade. of like a pasta machine like rolling it out it's uh yeah you know you could the god only knows what like aspirational like material aspects of contemporary movies will be very uh dated at the time but like Things like uh, the the cell phone on the beach has like the <laughs> the, the, the immense like symbology like you know that's called the that, Michael that, Douglas that, phone. <laughs> yeah, those, those are a hot uh, collector's item now. If you've got uh, one of those in your your closet, uh, dude, I think my dad comedy. had one. It, it was oh, don't let him throw it away. I he had like a very old Motorola. I don't know if it was the, but I, it might have been. It might have been the bigger the better. You guys remember but nailing, uh, like you know. Go ahead, sorry. Well, like like the, and it's not just like oh these are the things that are popular. Let's uh, let's fetishize them on screen so you can do the oh yeah I recognize that thing, but actually being able to bake in the symbology of like okay he's wandering around the beach which is usually a uh, sort of area of escape of like seclusion from the the built up world like you know full on Thoreau like Walden type shit but he's got this totem that connects him to uh to like this actual uh sort of symbolic uh arena like he's he's like tied into his job not even his job but like his uh his occupation his calling like what he actually uh does uh while he's in this area of escape and the kind of contradiction between that as like mediated by this bit of technology like that's an interesting thing that's more interesting than like ah yellow pants we're we're in the 80s Let's let's do some uh, some aerobics and wear headbands and shit, which is how most uh, most movies try to approach that sort of uh, uh, like just, you know, I keep saying aesthetic, but that aesthetic aspect of some time period. So I I thought it was fantastic. (laughs) So if we in there's this time frame where you know in it's like 86 um platoons made but he also makes salvador in 86 very low budget film i i think it's pretty good you know it has everyone's favorite james wood james woods right everybody loves his twitter handle uh it's kind of funny how some of these actors you know i like salvador oh night so so nick uh why did you like salvador it's been years since I've seen it, but I am a big fan of the just the genre of political instability, like you know, revolution in the air, some Latin American or Asian country. Uh, people are getting disappeared by spooks. I just I'm a, I'm a sucker for that, and I I'm also a fan of James Woods. It's not my favorite in that genre. My favorite in that genre is hands down, without question, the years of living dangerously. But uh, I did, I did like Salvador. Not as much as that movie, but it, it was good. 
Well, it's like you have you have Belushi in it. You know, they're constantly drinking and doing drugs throughout it. James Wood's character is, you know, this kind of journalist that's always going from one next thing to the next, you know, begging people for money, trying to get in to uh, whatever hot spot he can get into. You know, he did some work, uh, the character references to uh, you know, the Khmer Rouge uh, in uh, Cambodia. And he um, he also did some other stuff. And then you find this guy and he's like in this you know shithole apartment and he has a baby and a kid and he can't make ends meet. He has no money. He's getting evicted and he goes to, um, you know, he wants to get into El Salvador. And if the listeners are like, OK, what does El Salvador have to do with anything? Well, what's going on? Well, in the 80s, there was so there was a lot of. uh upheavals politically and socially all throughout Latin America. And there was some wild shit going on in, in El Salvador. Uh, we're probably still kind of dealing with the ramifications of this, right? With that infamous gang, what is it? M13 or whatever the, uh, MS 13. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in you guys did a episode on kind of, Hank did a good job on an episode about uh, Colombia, where you focused on the on what was going on with the FARC and different just the just the craziness, just a complete. It just it, it's it's hard to explain, but it, it's basically ever since the beginning of the 1900s, Latin America has been you know unstable, right? <laughs> I mean, um, and El Salvador, you know at this point in the eighties, Reagan's president and, you know, people might know about Nicaragua and the Sandista Sandistas and, and you still had the cold war going on and people were uh, freaking out about the Russians and Soviets and whatnot. And, and I think that um, Oliver Stone does a good job and Salvador to kind of show this little place in the world that people are probably not familiar with at all. And just how, hellacious it can be uh for the people living there and the cr the crazy thing is is that they they have like a couple scenes where james wood's character is talking to the ambassador in el salvador and he's talking to like the the spooks in el salvador and trying to figure out what's going on and 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 you know be able to get up his papers you know his credentials so he can move from one camp to the next you know whether it's with the communists or whether it's it's with the right wingers and they have all these rallies and you see this point where the right winger like group i forget the name of the guy in the movie but he's like this kind of strong man uh and he has all of his constituents are like they have like their own um t-shirts on and they're like, you know, red, white, and blue. And they, they kind of remind me of MAGA hats. You know, they have these like caps on where they're, they got, they, they got the strong man's name across the cap, you know, and it's um, these paramilitary death squads going out and, you know, executing people. And to Stone's credit in the movie, he shows what the left wing gorillas do. You know, they, they, they get into this back and forth thing where it just becomes you know one murder after the next one execution after the next and uh villages fighting each other you know for political control uh meanwhile james woods is just caught in the middle of it trying to get you know the, the scoop on 
uh, the story and get some good photographs. I thought it was good. Did anybody else see it besides Nick? I, I have not seen it. Yeah, man, it, it's it's one of those movies that it he, when he made it, um, you know, like I said, he was making it. Uh, it got released the same year as Platoon, so it it obviously got overshadowed by it, and it had a, just a tiny budget. I think it was like a million dollar budget or something like that. Um, and in his memoir, he talks about all the crazy uh, adventures he has, you know, filming it uh, like he does like he had in platoon in the Philippines trying to shoot platoon. Uh, so that's another, yeah, a good aside about just kind of what it's like to try to film a movie in a third world country. Um, and during that time, it, you know, it was just, it was just so chaotic. Um, and I don't, you know, he's trying to convey a message in Salvador that, uh, American foreign policy, you know, acts like, okay, they're trying to, it, it's better if the right-wing dictatorship gets in power than the left-wing guerrillas and communists. And that's the narrative, you know, that's what Reagan wants. But, uh, you know, Alverson's trying to show that, like, <laughs> either way, like, you basically don't, um, you don't come out the end of it uh, for the better, or uh, at least not the Salvadorian people. Um and, you know, James Wood's character basically is, you know, disillusioned by it all because he sees how, you know, one atrocity leads to another. And that's kind of the message of the movie. But you just don't see this type of stuff, really. You know, you, it's like you really don't see these type of films being made, um, whether whether or not it's the the message that. You know, it actually would be better for the right wing dictatorship to be in charge or not. Um, you just you don't see them being made. So I thought it was interesting that it got made in the first place. And and James Wood uh, ends up being in uh, Nixon later on, which right. is great. Yeah. Well, he was. Uh, I mean, I think in yeah. general that the low to mid budget uh, drama is just sort of yeah, dead. It's gone. Uh, that's why people shit. <laughs> Stone has said that uh, today, and he said it was it was bad back then. But I don't I don't know what the dynamics of. I, I think it was really I think nine eleven that he said was, which I don't necessarily agree with. But he said that for him, he noticed that the level of censorship uh, was uh, incredible after that. And you know, even going back to like the movie like Top Gun and, and stuff like that. I mean, that movie has obviously got, you know, a U.S. Department of Defense uh, stamp of approval over every uh, frame of the movie uh, just about. And he says that that's true for almost anything now. Uh, and I think he's implying that it, it was like that for a long time as well. But I think it's ramped up and maybe that's why we don't see as many of these somewhat alt critical films. All those films. Michael Bay transformers movies are basically dod productions yeah i can see that you know what's interesting is that uh stone was going to do a movie on martin luther king can you imagine and uh, he basically oh uh, and like how how like the uh, the feds were like supporting him or something yeah and the he he basically 
bailed on it because the, you know, the, the uh, I don't know, the MLK estate or whatever was going to give him too much shit for it. So at least he went on record, you know, telling something pretty honest about <laughs> how it would be impossible to do a movie the way he would want to do one on uh, Martin Luther King. Yeah, you can't criticize Saint King. Yeah. He also wanted to do a movie on uh, Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, <laughs> which I think would have been really? interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, the forties one is it's it's okay. It's not great. Yeah, I've but, only seen uh, clips. But I like the idea better than Atlas Shrugged, as a movie at least. I mean, you know, a movie about uh, ANCAPs going into Colorado as the rest of the country burns itself down just doesn't have the same uh, grandeur as a movie about a genius architect in a big city. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, sh- I should watch The Fountainhead, the old one. I've, I've only seen clips of it. He was on the... Uh... The need to do a rewrite to make the uh, very 40s, like very implicit version of the uh, the initial uh, sexual tension there a little bit more uh, on the nose for Ayn Rand. <laughs> you know, he was I don't know if he, we had already mentioned this, but along with um, writing the script for Scarface, he wrote the script for Conan the Barbarian. Well, he helped. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, John Millions. John Millions. Uh, yeah. uh, that's why I didn't mention it. Yeah. Yeah, because that's one of my all-time favorite movies. And, uh, yeah. I know he did. He was, yeah, he was a co-writer. So, I mean, credit where it's due. That movie yeah. is fucking fantastic. <laughs> so, um, let, I think it would make sense to kind of segue into um, – a little uh, JFK Nixon action. I think this is where the, the meat of uh, the audience's interest would probably lie, at least politically in, in with his films. Um, did uh, I'm assuming that Hank has seen JFK. Yep. I've seen both of them. Nice. Uh, <clears throat> Hank, what did you think? Uh, okay. So before I saw JFK, my viewing experience was mediated by the uh, JFK memes. Uh, I mean, this was like when I say memes, like Seinfeld uh, was doing parodies of the famous uh, like magic bullet scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back into the left. Back. Yeah. In- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, every time. <laughs> Uh, I, I I swear there are like Simpsons parodies of it. Uh, it was a real, you know, cultural touchstone uh, there for a while. And so when I was watching it uh, and especially kind of having missed the very boomer uh, kind of JFK uh, himself, as a cultural touchstone, uh, it didn't evidently have the same punch for me that uh, I probably would have had had I been like 20, 30, 40 years older. Uh, which is not to say that it's like a bad film. It's just so because it is dealing with a real event. 
the temptation is to be like, okay, well, this is all kind of weird and bullshit. And like the underlying thesis of the movie that this like group of shadowy industrialists or whatever is doesn't really check out uh, in anyone's real theorizing. So you can look at it that way, but conveying the uh, conveying the sense of like mistrust that the JFK events engendered, uh, I think it does a good job. And because it uh, was able to become like its own meme out of the context, even of the actual JFK assassination. Uh, I think that it was successful in kind of solidifying the idea that, yeah, you know, the official story is bullshit. Opinions differ uh, as far as what the real story is. But, like, I don't think that anyone really at all is like, yeah, you know, Lee Oswald, lone gunman, seems legit, case closed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a... Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like you're saying like you were already blackpilled enough to um, not really uh, like the shadowy figures behind the scenes. You you, you know, you weren't quite uh, enthralled by that. Um, but I, it didn't like blow my mind. It wasn't like, wow. Yeah. But could you imagine watching it when you're 13? And yeah. what it would you know, and so that was my experience. Uh, and I fucking watched that film probably like I can imagine like, that because that was my experience also. Uh oh, <laughs> we might have um, uh, twin souls in a way. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but uh, I think that one of the things is that uh, there's there's a couple things that you know when Hank says that you know it it didn't blow his mind or whatever, and like of course people think that it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald that did it. I am telling you right now. There are plenty of normies that still think that. <laughs> um, so it, the cognitive dissonance runs deep. Um, and I think that it, like Hank said, you know, it did its job in at least to the people that watched it. And it did make money. It was pretty much a, a relative financial success based off of how much it cost to make it. And like you said, the memeing that went on afterwards, even before people even talked about what a meme was, uh, it put enough doubt in the back of people's mind to like remember this shit. You know, it came out in 1991, right? So it was like 30 years almost after the assassination. Well, he he said he got a lot of criticism for it, uh, probably from the usual suspects and the same types of people today that accuse people of being conspiracy theorists about uh, blatantly obvious things like election fraud. But, um, I think what it was, was he hadn't gotten that political yet in Hollywood and Hollywood being the left leaning place that it is, uh, didn't like, uh, him. I don't know, like questioning, questioning that things are more complicated than left and right. I, I don't know. I, I don't quite know exactly what the narrative or in their minds was that caused them to be upset. I think there's but. a very strong, like don't rustle the Goyam instinct. 
it's a very crude way of putting it, but it's like you're you're allowed yeah. to be controversial to the extent that you're not actually being controversial. You're just uh, being uh, provocative or whatever. Like you're allowed to put weird, grotesque, violent, whatever stuff on a screen, even encouraged to do so because eh, it's just a movie. But you're not encouraged to do something that actually makes you know, the wrong kinds of claims about non-consensus claims, I guess, about contemporary, uh, in a very particular kind of consensus, uh, claims yeah, about contemporary politics. And because we got to remember that back in the early 90s, I mean, the American empire was feeling real strong, you know, I would imagine, you know, I, I was, you know, too young to know what the hell was going on. But No, I was. It was um, a triumphant time. I mean, it was everybody yeah. was like, geez, the U.S. is the shit. How are we going to spend the surplus? <laughs> yeah. I remember being in a line at the DMV and some dude is like, we ought to spend the surplus on fixing this. It takes too long. <laughs> yeah. That was actually a thing. Peace dividend. That's you know right. what? Get an old textbook, you know, uh, get some, you know, garbage history book. And it'll say that um, Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy. <laughs> you know? Um, and... You know, I think that, uh, first of all, like, just to be kind of, you know, to make this a little fun, uh, I think that um, how can you not love uh, Kevin Bacon's performance about, uh, you know, his little shtick when he's like, fascism is coming back. Fascism is coming back, Mr. Garrity. <laughs> oh, man, I've seen that movie too many times. Sorry. I don't know. I like <laughs> Kevin Bacon too much to have a problem with that. Yeah, is it? I had Nick. a history teacher in high school who was very, very much like Oliver Stone, probably about the same age, uh, an old school leftist, you know, not a physical coward also. So to his credit, like you, not your typical leftist, you know, school teacher, uh, at least not typical of the younger one. And he had, uh, you know, the he had a lot of like radical posters and stuff, like Malcolm X kind of thing. And uh, he owned, he had like a eight millimeter print of the Zapruder film, and he showed it to the class. Like he did a whole uh, curriculum on the Kennedy assassination, <laughs> and part of it was uh, watching the uh, Oliver Stone film. That's great. So, <laughs> it was. It had its desired effect on me uh i that was my introduction into the kennedy assassination and i, I read a lot of those books for a while it's something that interested me he is supposedly so, about it, it to come out me. with a, a documentary uh based on some uh fairly newly released uh jfk files that i will be looking forward to with uh, great interest you know, it's like when you look at like... Yeah, I mean, that just, would be very interesting. Th think about how, I mean, I mean, I, I thought that um, Kevin Costner did a good job. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones as Clay Shaw. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's like, it was great. I mean, you even have Gary Oldman playing Lee R.V. Oswald. I mean, just a, in a film perspective, you know, in a casting perspective, it was great. Um and the kind of the 
I think a lot of the people that, you know, listen to your podcast and, you know, understand that things aren't what they seem, you know, obviously, but uh, that this is, this film kind of shows how I think that it's basically Oliver Stone, you know, gets that, you know, the game is rigged. There's all types of fuckery afoot, but uh, it's like he, the, the reason why right wingers can't really get behind Oliver Stone's films overall is because he's caught in this kind of philosophy of what the American empire should be that I, me, you, everyone, you know, probably listening, uh, doesn't, we, we understand that that that's part of the problem is, and what I'm saying is the, he thinks that like, basically the, the, the American empire should be for democracy, for human rights, for all these type of kind of abstract yeah. concepts. So right? That's the central conceit I see in Oliver Stone generally. And it, it comes from his belief in the democracy idea. And namely, he's one of these people who's still of the very naive belief that true information matters at least for the, the great majority of people, for the masses, the true information for the masses matters and can change something that can change the historical destiny. I mean, what more proof do you need than the Kennedy assassination that none of this fucking matters and that the, the business of the empire will continue? You know, they can execute an American president in broad daylight and you can just have this be swept under the rug because people got to get back to business. You know, you would think that somebody who is interested as, as interested as he was in the Kennedy assassination and you know, what happened to his generation in Indochina, you would think he might have learned this lesson, but I don't, it doesn't seem like he has. Yeah, I think you're, you're right in that, you know, in that analysis, basically, I, I, I've come to a similar conclusion, you know, he's 74 years old now, and he's had countless interviews, you can listen to any number of interviews that he's done and documentaries that he's done. Um, and the the only way that I can kind of figure it out you know for lack of a better word is that he really you know so it's it's not it's that he has this moralistic virtue uh dream of what america was what it was supposed to be what it should be and it's like okay things are unraveling you know after world war ii especially and he was part of it like nick said you know in the vietnam war and ever after he's trying to reconcile these things. And it's like, no, you know, <laughs> the empire is going to continue regardless. And, but on, on top of that, it's like, it's going to do so uh, in a moralizing fashion, even though the virtue and moral and morality behind it is, you know, a stack of cards. Um, and it, I, I don't know, you know, with with JFK, you know, another thing besides just being a, a pretty interesting film to watch, it's it's a long film, just like Nixon's a long film. You know, uh, I like that he doesn't care if it's long. You know, there's so many different things where 
you you can't really watch a movie after you know two hours just seems like a long film to people nowadays or whatever but it's like um when he makes these films he he i respect the fact that he's just like you know i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do it's gonna to be the length that it's gonna be uh and to his credit you know when he cast these people in jfk he made it work it was an yeah i think it's a you know it's an interesting story and it's an interesting drama um even though it's not really getting at what probably actually happened you know for lack of a better word i mean you know ultimately who knows really you know the mafia the mafia connections the the, the cia uh he plays with this a lot though in nixon as well this kind of texas connection and how the cubans you know, in the JFK movie or like, you know, let there be an inspiring act of God and put a Texan in the white house. <laughs> um, and you see the same thing in Nixon where the, the kind of Texas businessmen are, you know, encroaching on Nixon's, um, uh, going for the, going for the white house. And they're like, you know, don't forget who, don't forget who put you there. We can easily take you out. <laughs> Um. Yeah. So yeah, honestly, I like since Nixon you seem to you know a lot about uh, Stone. Yeah, I was gonna so about Nixon. I I I thought Nixon was fantastic, and some of the best parts in that film because it was already very long. Some of the best parts didn't make it into the final version. So if you watch Nixon, make sure to watch either find a version that has all of the ex it's some kind of extended cut or just on the DVD if you still watch dvds uh, do you remember which parts deleted scene section were uh, most notable that were cut uh yeah there's the there's the conversation that he has uh, over the uh over the table god it's been it's the one where it, halderman or no 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 it's who does no ed, ed uh it's howard hunt yeah, when Ed, Ed Harris's role as Howard Hunt, and that that conversation is long. There's a version that's longer than the one that made it to the theatrical cut. That's the one that really uh, sticks in my mind. As far as I, I think, there were a few others as well, uh, but his portrayal of Howard Hunt was excellent. The question I would have about Nixon is whether Stone because. I can see easily how if you're deep in the Kennedy stuff, you would start to take another look at Nixon. I mean, there's lines of continuity there that are unavoidable. And I'm curious as to whether, because I'm sure considering his politics and his experience in the war in Vietnam, I think it's likely he probably had some contempt for Nixon. Uh, going into it or at least going into the subject do you know whether what his attitude was and whether it changed in the process of making the movie because what's what struck me when i first watched it's been many years since i've seen it uh, but it struck me that it was actually a fairly sympathetic portrayal of richard nixon yeah i mean i think that he you know, from his memoir, but also from you can look at a interview that he does in 1995 when the film was released with Charlie Rose. You know that old show, Charlie Rose would it, you know uh, get directors on and talk. I used about. to watch that show for the record. 
Hey man, it's okay. It's 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 good. I mean, if you want to, you know, listen to a director or somebody talk about something, it's like no, there was nothing like that back back in the '90s. uh, Other than that, I mean, honestly, it was long form. It wasn't this stupid Oprah sit down for five minutes. You know, tell us about your uh, your new (laughs) dog. You know, or some trivial nonsense. No, it was it was good. I mean, for the kids listening, it was before the time of podcasts. It's all you had. Um, and, uh, you know, I would even listen to, I, you know, in the early two thousands, I would geek out on C-SPAN book notes. Okay. So <laughs> to give you an idea of, uh, yeah. Anyway. So, uh, if you, if, you know, when you're, when I'm trying to answer Nick's question about, uh, Stone's view of Nixon and how it changed or didn't change throughout the filming, well, in his own words, he basically thought that Nixon, in a lot of ways, had the similar politics and worldview as his father. And um, and he doesn't – and I think that he doesn't really say that as a pejorative or you know an insult or anything like that. It's just how he sees it, how Stone sees um, Nixon and guys like his dad. And I think that um, he does sympathize with Nixon – you know, to a degree, um, and he wasn't trying to do a character assassination or uh, make it, uh, you know, a, a satire like W was, you know, which is kind of a funny movie, by the way, W. But anyway, um, it, uh, it, he's, he's trying to deal with Nixon in an honest way and get to what was motivating Nixon and, and who Nixon was and all that, you know, as best he can. Uh, I, you know, obviously there's flaws with it. Uh, there's lots of different disagreements that you would probably have with his interpretation or I would have with his interpretation of Nixon. Uh, and, and, and if anybody's listening to the episode on that you guys did on Nixon, it was great. Um, but uh, so check that out uh, in the archives. But the other thing is when he was doing this film, you know, he – he, he says on Charlie Rose interview in 95 that uh, that he thought that Nixon was consumed with lies. You know, he was in the film plays on this with his mother, you know, kind of making sure that he's honest and all this stuff. And he feels like uh, Nixon was at the end. He even said like in 73, you know, t- as far as Stone's concerned, by 73, he could have still more or less got away with it if he came clean, in Stone's words. Like, you know, if he just said, you know, we shouldn't have been in Vietnam or whatever, it needs to end now, then that people would have accepted that. Now, and I think he's sincere in the in the fact that that's what Stone thinks, um, you know, and make of that what you will, but also that, you know, he was also very paranoid. And I think the film does a good job of portraying that as well. And he probably should have been paranoid, right? Um, there's a good line in the film where... You know, if Trump uh, was as paranoid as Nixon, he might have uh, even gotten a second term. But, uh, <laughs> you know, who knows? Yeah, exactly. Uh, in, there's, a, there's a line in it where uh, Nixon goes, you know, J. Edgar Hoover knows more than I know. <laughs> so I thought that, that was a good line by, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's very I, aware yeah. statement. There's a really, like I said, it's been years since I've seen the film. I do remember this very 
of a clear impression, I should say, of the scene where he goes out, I think, onto the mall and he like talks to some yeah. I, I don't yeah, know if they're big protesters or vets. Or that th- actually happened. That was a very touching scene, actually. Yeah, that was real. Yeah, I, I think that was a great scene. Um and you know, it's it's like the whole time, you know, it, the, it's another thing that I think Stone does to to a good jo- a good a good degree in his memoir is he he has this kind of stream of consciousness that's coherent. You know, it's not all rambled and uh, you know just incoherent or whatever when you're reading the memoir, but it's a very kind of stream of consciousness. And in a lot of ways, he does that in this film. You know, it's even more coherent, I think in the Nixon film than it is in JFK um, where, you know, there's just, you're always constantly having flashbacks. Uh, Nixon is always remembering what his mother said, dealing with that, uh, the tragedy of his brother. And I think he, he does portray uh, Nixon. He cared, you know, he gives him uh, human qualities, which no one does in the political left. You know, no one does. Um, And, he he also uh, gives him credit about you know dialoguing with Mao, you know opening up China that type of thing, um, and I think that uh, he shows that it's like that you know Nixon kept on. That's what's amazing about Nixon. It's like he lost the governor. You know he he tried to become governor of California after he lost the presidential election. And he, you know, manages to come back again after that. And so it's, I mean, I don't know if there's anybody in the past hundred years or whatever that has done something like that. Where you keep losing and then you finally win. (laughs) Just wait. Bernie can still pull this off. I think also the, the, the casting of Anthony Hopkins was was just excellent it gave it a very shakespearean kind of and i think that's what i liked most about the film and you know i think uh have you guys ever listened to the nixon tapes that hbo released a while ago uh, or had on hbo or something uh the selections of the nixon tapes the infamous no. Nixon. Tapes. it's it's worth your while if you can dig that up somewhere um and I, and I think the movie does a good job of him, you know, you can just imagine like Nixon in the dark room, you know, drinking. And, and to his credit, uh, Stone said that, you know, Nixon wasn't an alcoholic. He would drink a few, you know, to relax and kind of decompress. Um, but he was on some type of medication that he would like uh, slur speech from time to time, but that he doesn't think that Nixon was ever, you know, not with it cognitively um and there's these scenes in the movie where nixon is just like in the room like going over tapes like you know manically just going over them going over them yeah that's actually there's i don't know if you've ever seen the film secret honor but that's all that film is it's a robert altman film where uh, philip baker hall plays him and it's just just nixon in the room one location film I, I don't know, guys. I honestly like I, I like uh, a lot about Nixon, but this like Hollywood obsession about portraying him as some evil man for 
like withholding tapes. It just never made any sense to me. It just seems so petty and pathetic and stupid. And I, I never got it. Honestly, I, I really don't. I still don't get it. Like, what is their fucking problem? Um, and that's kind of like the scene you're talking about, Nick, where he goes up to these kids and they're all like whining and complaining and they're wearing their little hippie dresses. And, and he's like, what, what's wrong? Like I'm fucking working my ass off trying to fix the cold war. And you guys are pissing all over the rose garden. Like stop, you know, it's just, I still don't, I I just don't understand the left. Like they're, they're just, they drive me crazy. And I think this is why Nixon had such a hard time with them because it wasn't how much he did or what what he was doing or what he said. It was sort of how he came across. And it's very emotional based. I think that's kind of what it boils down to. He wasn't this dashing Kennedy type. And he's this dour, you know, old fashioned type. And that I, I think they just they didn't think was cool. Honestly, I think that's what a lot of it is. I think that's that what the movie well, know, uh, was trying to portray. There are a bunch of faggots. So, Hank, did you did you see uh, Nixon? You saw it, right? What did you oh think? yeah, I love Nixon um, as a as a film. Like, I thought that the part that kind of stuck out the most to me was uh, the very well done ambiguity. Like, as he's getting more and more paranoid, and he keeps keeps talking about oh the the Bay of Pigs thing. I don't know what voice I'm doing there. I, I don't know if. <laughs> I'm doing like a, a Rush Limbaugh or a Nixon or some some amalgamation of uh, just growly people. But yeah, I thought it was great. Um, and I think that it was actually uh, better served because like, you know, there's there there are some mysteries about the whole Nixon uh, thing, but uh, they don't really overshadow um, especially the kind of dynamic within the administration, like the uh, the chain of events on the inside is fairly well established. And uh, so it's not sort of distracting by like, well, I just don't believe your premise or your hypothesis about what happened because it's like, OK, yeah, it's a depiction basically of what happened with certain kind of thematic uh, shading in order to try to convey like the tragic aspect of somebody who is uh, sort of uh, trapped in a position, almost like trapped in a no-win situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's it's it. I think that even I think that one of the things that is Nixon the movie didn't do well in the box office, which you know, I, it's kind of strange because JFK did do well, you know, relatively. Um, I guess it's not that strange if you think about it a little bit, but um, I actually think that in a lot of ways, more people, if they actually watched both of them, would probably be more into would you know, regardless of their politics, would probably think Nixon was the more coherent, more uh, enjoyable, uh, you know, movie to watch if you're into the, you know, political movies. Um, and, but it, it didn't do well at all. And it, it's, it's kind of funny because I, it probably didn't do well at all because people do, you know, it's like, oh, you're not shitting on Nixon for three hours. Okay. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> yeah. I, if I had to guess, it's a situation where Nixon supporters don't want to watch an Oliver Stone movie about Nixon. 
and Nixon haters <laughs> also don't want to watch an Oliver Stone movie about Nixon. <laughs> so so weird. Yeah. Dissident right podcasters end up watching it. <laughs> yeah, it's an exactly. audience of four. <laughs> it's kind of like you. You know, it's like we don't have anywhere to really go with, for political movies, so we're stuck with Stone, you know, um, but in a way. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I, I think that, you know, it, it, the runtime for the film, like without the extensions, I think is 190 minutes. I mean, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. It's like a three and a half hour uh, movie. Uh, with the uh, the good shit added back in it's it's definitely <laughs> intermission needed yeah you can either you know yeah you know, yeah it's like get your get your uh favorite you know drug of choice or beverage but don't do too much while you do it <laughs> you know but it's a fun one to watch um and i i think that i i mean the other thing is that you know it it shows like um just kind of how Nixon's career, I mean, it, it really does give you a good snapshot. Well, not really even a snapshot. It gives you a good movie length uh, of his pretty much his whole uh, career, except not his whole career, but his career from, you know, trying to be president the first time and failing all the way through to the end. Um, but the the interesting thing would have been, I, I think, almost more interesting in some ways is him as vice president, you know, uh, that would have been the uh, Eisenhower story, I guess. So we've skipped over Oliver Stone's greatest movie on the chronology. Uh, what? I, natural Born Killers? I'm not sure. If I start talking about... Yeah. Yes. Well, I should have remembered that we had done a show on that. Fact. And he actually was involved in that, not Evita as a half writer. Wait, what was that, Adam? Nothing, nothing. Go ahead. We, we, you asked which show we, we had done on uh, Stone movie, and I should have said Natural Born Killers, which I forgot we uh, was a Stone movie actually. But I'm now I'm remembering. But we you haven't that done the show on Natural Born Killers. In fact, didn't, I could didn't do, we? Like I could I could talk for like I could easily talk for two hours about Natural Born Killers because well, it, it's got so many so many things in it that I I think what, what's that? Well, I was going to say let's talk for a while about it either way. <laughs> well, um, it, it, it it's it, it part of the proud American uh, American culture, right? American culture is a it's about uh, sex and violence, you know, and it's about murdering people. My my favorite movie of all time uh, is the film Badlands by Terrence Malick, and Natural Born Killers is basically it takes Badlands. And it updates it for like the Manson era and the, you know, it's kind of like spring era. And I mean, you have the whole Geraldo standing with Robert Downey Jr. And I said, I've always, you know, I think it's peculiar to be too interested in Charles Manson. Uh, I know Adam has said that to me before, but the, the greatest thing to ever air on American television was the Geraldo Rivera. Charles Manson interviews. It's it tells you basically everything you need to know about America. I mean, uh, Charlie lays it out. You know, say what you will about him, but he lays it out, and he just puts the moral rot and hypocrisy of the American regime just on black. And Geraldo doesn't know what to do with it. 
And Natural Born Killers is like that as a film. It's like you take that the Manson and Geraldo Rivera and you take Badlands and you, you smush them together. And that's that's Natural Born Killers. Yeah, it reminded me kind of of like uh, that. Um, what was it, the Hunter S. Thompson film with, uh, you know, with um, Benicio Del Toro and Johnny Depp a little bit. Uh, this the kind of the way the the film oh, fear, fear and loathing yeah fear and loathing yeah that's it uh in in the sense of how it looked not like the subject matter necessarily but um you know it was, it was very jarring and kind of like how you you know you're like you're saying like on tv on you're on blast uh and just the utter ridiculousness of what you know how what people you know in America fetishize about, you know, like you said, they fetishize with uh, true crime and um, just how people get celebrity worshiping going on and, and that kind of admixture going on throughout the film. That's the thing about Americans is they're in love with violence, yet they still like to moralize to you. Yeah. And I mean, do you know much about isn't there a controversy uh, with the film being some type of Quentin Tarantino, you know, background to it? Like, I, I thought I read somewhere a, a long time ago that Tarantino might have you know, might have wrote this the screenplay or part of it. or it, something. It looks a lot like a Tarantino film. Well, and, well, it would be pretty rich from the. You know, arch plagiarist Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, many have said that. Like that. But uh, no, I, I actually don't know any real details about the about the uh, behind the scenes of the film. I will point out one thing that I do know, which is interesting, is that uh, Woody Harrelson, uh, his father was a was a murderer. His father was a hitman for the mob. Really? For for who? What outfit? Yeah, some, just crime of some kind. You know, I don't some know, crime. I don't know what the <laughs> details. I, I mean, Debt collector. You know, you kill people for money. Wow. Har Harrelson's kind of an interesting one too because I think uh, he was executed by the state. Do, do you guys remember back in uh, like the '90s when he was still kind of a hot actor? Um, they uh, they arrested him for climbing the Golden Gate Bridge and dropping like this giant like. Uh, pot banner like marijuana you know moe yeah. bro like culture stuff back when that was still kind of edgy but it was i don't know what it was bizarre it was uh it was like he wanted hemp to be available as a, a textile or something i don't know why that was his hill to die on but that that definitely was woody harrelson well he makes up for all of his bullshit if in uh true detective season one and uh, no Country for Old Men. He has a great uh, part in No Country for Old Men, but I mean, uh, yeah, he, I think he's he's actually I think he's a pretty good actor. It it it's it's funny. Yeah, I like him. I like him. He's, he's cool. like the crazy man or something. Um, it, it was it Matthew McConaughey or him that got in trouble for playing you know naked with his bongos in Austin or something playing I, bongos. It, it sounds like a McConaughey <laughs> thing, but maybe yeah. it wasn't. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, the it's like, and this is you know an, another theme that 
Oliver Stone kind of touches on, like he, there's some type of uh, synergistic uh, connection with a lot of his films. I mean, throughout his whole career, you know, he's trying to point out the kind of incongruousness of American culture and American politics, whether it be, you know, in uh, going way back to Midnight Express with, you know, the kind of ridiculousness of a Turkish prison, you know, and uh, that whole steel. Um, but then going through American foreign policy in Vietnam and through the JFK and Nixon years and then with Natural Born Killers, he's definitely uh, trying to point the camera back at the, the viewer and say, you know, why are you obsessed with this type of, you know, repulsive behavior? Um, <laughs> and it, I think he does a good job. I mean, it's, 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 it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, film. There's not a lot, there's not a whole lot of, I mean, there's really, I don't know. I mean, what you, you said, Nick mentioned uh, Badlands, but uh, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde type of fixation goes way back Um and in this obsession with vigil, you know, some type of uh, folk heroes that get worshipped for their their kind of um, wild ways, you know, almost as if you know there's some type of catharsis by viewing things like this and obsessing about not just serial killers, but you know, anybody basically, you know, thumbing their nose to the law. I mean, what American boy doesn't grow up wanting to murder his girlfriend's parents? <laughs> uh... <laughs> I mean, what do you think? I mean, Nick, what do you think that what do you think that the purpose of of film of Oliver Stone making that film was really? I mean, what do you think he was trying to convey in it? I mean, a symbiotic relationship between television watchers television makers and actual real world violence that's what it's what it's about yeah I, is that still it, a thing though uh, and again i go back to that show we did on uh serial killers that that was the title of the show uh where we kind of brought this up and it was definitely more of a thing back then like in the 90s for whatever PSYOP they're cooking up at uh, Langley or Quantico. I don't know who's pushing this stuff or if it's just organic, but it doesn't seem to be a big thing anymore. I mean, like school shooting, sure. Uh, terrorism, they seem to be the big uh, topics du jour or, uh, of the year. But the, the serial killer thing, maybe it was amplified by the media back then, but they don't seem to be doing it, that as much today. It, it's because of the decline, a demographic decline, the decline of America in general, American pastimes like, uh, you know, cross-country murder sprees, uh, romanticized cross-country murder sprees, are, uh, I guess they're going away. It's no longer, uh, no longer something people relate to. Because you really have to get, there's a lot you have to get in it. You have to understand a lot about America. Like if you showed natural born killers to like a foreigner, like a real, real foreigner who doesn't hasn't consumed too much American anti-culture exports, you know, who, you know, you sit them down and show them this movie, put, you know, subtitles on. Uh, they're not going to have any fucking clue what this is. 
yeah it, it's it is strange like how the the serial killer phenomena has been downplayed uh in america you know nowadays um versus you know back in the 90s and 80s and 70s um and you have basically like adam said uh, uh it's moved towards you know mass shootings and uh school shootings um which you know it, it's it's definitely it seems kind of connected it's like you know is it just being is it just being grasped upon because you know people it's it, people don't it, it's not like normal american talk to you know sit on the sit around the the cooler and talk about serial serial killers or mass shootings but it is it was and is on the media constantly so it's kind of this strange thing and it, you have the whole uh, female obsession with serial killers as, as well you that know, you always... that is definitely a thing <laughs> yeah i mean there's you can go on netflix right now I, I don't recommend it but you can go on netflix and see any number of true crime you know whatever documentaries and docudramas and series and whatnot you know it, like dexter like why was dexter so fucking popular you know <laughs> I, I was uh i was in a uh large cosmopolitan city on Halloween one year and I was staying at a friend's place and the uh, roommate and his girlfriend walked in and the guy was wearing uh, I guess was like a surgical gown and I'm like oh what's your costume he's like Dexter and I'm like oh yeah Dexter I thought he was talking about the cartoon I didn't even know what the show was at the time Um, (laughs) I I still I think I saw half of one once and I didn't get it but um, it's just a good-looking guy who's a bad boy that ultimately just appeals to women's uh, reptilian brains, I think is really what it boils down to. It's not that complicated, uh, but they just yeah. want to know they're with a very uh, lethal, dangerous guy who loves them though. That's really what it is. And I, I guess uh, women also, they like to know that you take enough interest in them to consider. Yeah, go ahead. I shouldn't finish that. Uh, also true, Nick. Also true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think... Uh, I, we could... Let me... I have an observation, actually. So, Stone is the quintessential boomer filmmaker. Because what you see in his filmography, you have all these events that were huge moments in that generation from the Vietnam war to, you know, big, big ticket politics, Nixon, the Kennedy assassination and the Manson killings. These are the, it's really the core of like, that's, that's, that's a a perfect resume for what it means to be a boomer is having been affected by those things. And, And Woodstock. Which none of them went to actually. And Woodstock. Yeah, well, none of them remember going to it. But you have uh, also, I would say about Natural Born Killers is it's definitely his most creative film, without question. Oh, and yeah, and you also have the Doors, right? He, he can't forget the Doors. I mean, this is it's. Yeah, yeah. it all it's yeah. all there. I do want and to it, mention briefly because I'm probably. 
Well, maybe you've I, Harry. Have you seen? Have you seen it? I think his most underrated film, which is U Turn. Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, what did you think about that? I loved U Turn. Oh really? <laughs> Hardly. Know I it. thought it was excellent. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen that one. I didn't know if any of the any of the panel would uh, have seen it, but yeah. It, it reminded me of other films. It's like he was trying, wasn't it? I think it was made in the later nineties. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it has, I mean, I, I barely remember much about it, but I mean, it was, it was, it was entertaining. It was definitely a different, can you make any connection between U-turn and natural born killers? Cause there's probably something there. Uh, maybe just natural born killers did well. So he's like, okay, I can make another like fucked up violent movie. <laughs> yeah but otherwise i don't really have much on it i i'll tell you who who if he hasn't seen it would really like you turn is hank yeah because i know hank hank also I, appreciates the genre of films where look, everything is going wrong and then things start getting more wrong and then they don't stop and it just keeps getting worse. There's yeah, no I mean, solution. Yourself, really like, my favorite get any genre. Worse? You, you've got me pegged, dude. Uh, I have not seen U-Turn, <laughs> but it is on my list now. Yeah, I mean, it's like... I... Oh, dude, you, you would love it. It's it's like... It, it's comical. And it, it is it is it is his funniest movie, too. I mean, there's some funny parts in Natural Born Killers, for sure. But if you have a really bleak sense of humor, like, U-Turn is, is a really funny film. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's it's like it's comedic without trying to be comedic. Really, uh, it, it, dark. Um, you know, it's basically. I think it's based on um, Stray Dogs. Some um, is that a book? I guess a novel uh, by John Redley. Um, and you know, essentially, a, uh, a drifter is in debt, and he and he he's debt to a, a violent gangster, and he basically, um, you know just gets in one thing after another trying to deal with his situation. It's pretty good. Um, and it has Jennifer Lopez in it <laughs> and Sean Penn as the star. I but, highly recommend this. We can, we can move on from it. I just, okay. people, yeah. Some, some people would really appreciate it. And, I mean, I guess it would make sense now to get into may, maybe more of like, uh, if any of you guys like, I know some of you had seen had said that you had watched some of the the Putin interviews, um, his you know 2017 documentary, and also I, have any of y'all seen the yeah, Untold American History documentary uh, 2013 Showtime series? Um, yes, I've I've only seen that the yeah, yeah the uh, Untold People's History or whatever it was yeah. Yeah. Before we talk about his documentaries, let's just let's just gloss over his his, his actual the rest of his actual filmography, uh, because okay. there is one more very good film. Oh, I won't say very good. I would say a film that could have been a masterpiece, but was was held back. It, and that would be Alexander. Oh, man, I didn't even want to bring it up because I thought y'all would hurt my feelings if I brought it up because I love Alexander the Great. I don't love the film, but I mean, I think I, it's. I, Go ahead. Sorry. I think it, which there's, okay. So the thing about that, I mean, whenever you have a film that's got, you know, four different, three or four different cuts, you, it's just, you know, there's, there's something going on there. 
The last cut you uh, got to watch. One the of last the cuts cut. came out relatively recently, and it's definitely the best one. I mean, it's a long movie, and there's four some hours stuff long. <laughs> that some bizarre choices were made, but I overall, I I think it's actually a, a very good film. Are, are we yeah. talking ultimate cut? Red pill me on which Alexander I should see because I think I only saw like the uh, ultimate whatever cut. was initially released on DVD. Yeah, and you it was have like, to watch eh. the last Hank. Yeah, you, you want last. ultimate cut? The it's ultimate like four cut? fucking hours long. Uh, is that the the longest <laughs> yeah, one? I thought they like one of the them. It one. was and like the best he one. added more stuff and then he took stuff out. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is about Oliver Stone is that so his his whole intention in doing it, he wanted to, there was a few uh, theaters that had an intermission when he released it. And that's the way he wanted to do it, you know, as kind of pretentious or whatever, as that may sound, you know, he was trying to do this epic story and that's really what it takes, you know? Um, and I, I, it's like, it, to, to me, it's like, you're, you're not going to see very many. I mean, who knows the next time you'll see uh you know, a, a film about ancient Greece that's worthwhile, you know, and, and ironically enough, Troy came out, I think in the same year back in 2004, which is also worth watching. But, um, Alexander Gray, I mean, he's such a, uh, I, to me, he's, you know, there, his story is awesome. You know, it's great. People should watch it. It's something that you should, it, it is a major red flag in the, Jewish capital of Hollywood. If you want to make a film about the greatest Aryan conqueror of all time, that you can see maybe this being the beginning of the end of his career, and it it basically was. I mean, it's the last, in my opinion, the last good movie he made. The troubled as it was, uh, I haven't seen much. Like the only other film I saw, I saw W. Actually, I saw theaters uh, that's a strange movie and there's this yeah. other and i saw savages unfortunately and that that movie was <laughs> like there's parts of it where you can kind of get where he might have been going w- with this but it was just the execution was terrible and the, the the final shootout in that movie just makes you makes you want to pull your hair out it's making you fucking sense um the trailer really captured point. the uh, the schizophrenic nature of that movie I think yeah. the trailer. Really, yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah. wanting to see it. I was like, "Oh, this could, this could be interesting." But like, that's you know, that's right. Uh, I'm with both of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The thing about wasn't Alex it like Cameron Diaz or something? And didn't she have a like a tiger or something like was, that? Is, is that God. do I have that right? You're thinking of um, the counselor, I think, right? Selma Hayek. Oh, the other movie that I was gravely disappointed yeah. in. Yes, you're right. You're right. Great, I was thinking of The Counselor. That was a great Another fucking movie novel. With a lot of wasted potential. Yeah, that was a. I like. Did you like the novel though? Uh, was it was a novel? I I didn't know yeah. it was. I thought he wrote that just as a screenplay. Or maybe I'm confused. I didn't realize maybe. he had a ever. I think he wrote it. Just, I think that's why it sucks because Cormac McCarthy needs someone like he needs like. I hate to say it. He needs like the Cohen brothers to make <laughs> his material into film because the way he writes dialogue in his novels, if you just translate that directly, it's not going to work. It's going to seem too bush. It's going to seem 
it's going to seem like what it is, which is it doesn't work for film. And it, you know, it's that problem when like all the characters are, are like too thoughtful and introspective and like their dialogue is just too, too well written. It, it doesn't work. It's not like a Robert Altman film. Robert Altman was great at doing exactly the opposite of that and making very dialogue. But uh, yeah, the counselor that that movie was was trash, unfortunately, because it, it had a lot of it had a lot of potential. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's like do uh, yourself. Other than that, uh, what do we have? Oh, go. Well, it's like, oh, sorry, it was just that uh, the it's like Alexander's worth watching just for the battle scenes alone. You know, if you have, you know, you're not going to see that type of you know wide screen. You know, the full Persian army versus a Macedonian army. I mean, it, it's never going to get made again, anything like that. Um, and then, you know, his, his campaign in India, I mean, the war elephants, it's epic. Um, there was a lot of, you know, yeah, I, homosexuality. In it. The, the homosexual innuendos. I mean, you know, it's like, who knows, you know, was Alexander really gay? Was he probably gay? Was he, you know, whatever you know um but the um the it, he he makes it it's like basically oliver stone he has that in the film a little bit uh thankfully it doesn't get too gratuitous um but you know that was my main gripe with it um but it, i do think it was a a good film like nick said uh, and i endorse it uh and i think that you know, with his other films like W and Snowden, it's like you can kind of see how he's kind of going, you know, counter signaling the empire, you know, the same way uh, that he's been doing, basically. But well, there's another strange trend at the end of his career where he starts out like, like Platoon was pretty, as somebody mentioned, was Platoon was actually pretty late to the part of war films and so he's making these films about contemporary history and recent events and you get into the 2000s and he's making movies about things that just happened like Snowden came out in 2016 I mean the other one that was strange I remember uh, reading uh, some of the listeners probably are not familiar with these but I remember reading a, in the newspaper about um when it was announced that Oliver Stone was going to be making a 9-11 film. You know, it was, uh, people were like, yeah. what's going on? What's this going to be? Is he going to do the Kennedy treatment already? I'll bet and you he, he, he got, out with this he film got visited I never even watched it, people. despite it having, well, exactly. He comes out with the film and it, it has the, the greatest actor who ever lived uh, in it. And I still haven't watched it. Because I I heard I you know I read the reviews and stuff and I heard it's just like oh this is just a it's like a just a disaster movie mm-hmm. basically it has there's nothing here there's nothing interesting I've always kind of wanted to watch it though and see if like there are any Easter eggs in it <laughs> you know that yeah like the plane like uh, flickers suddenly on the something. screen by accident yeah oh man. I don't know. At this point, honestly, people like if you need a Hollywood movie to teach you they something could, you about reality, you know, you need to get help elsewhere. I mean, we 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 appreciate Oliver Stone as young men because as young men we uh, 
we don't understand how these images images are used to manipulate. And as older men, we understand how they're used to manipulate for uh, maybe propaganda purposes, but we never assumed it was on us. It was always somebody else was doing it to somebody else. But once you've sort of broken through that lens, I think you can just listen to people who have a lot of credibility and don't need the uh, the polish of a Hollywood production studio to convince you. You should be able to use your brain a little bit. And I think there's enough evidence out there on 9-11 in particular for people to do their own research. And if you can't, well, I guess you're just going to be part of the uh, the uh, sheep that are part of the voting population of this country. But th- this also brings up my um, the other uh, point I made earlier regarding Kennedy. And this is the equivalent for the, you know, uh, younger generations. This was the event, right? I mean, sure, everyone who was alive in 2001 remembers where they were and et cetera. I mean, it's an experience similar to how it was when Kennedy had his head blown off, only this time uh, it's a lot more dramatic and a lot more bodies. But, you know, the thing is, is that the boomers were certain boomers were they were, I guess you'd say, obsessed with it. Like and I think you'd have every reason to be because it's it's like if you're a young man at the time and the, the president is, is executed in the streets, you probably aren't, you know, a certain personality type is never going to just be like, OK, let's back to to business as usual. And they're never really going to let it go. And with 9-11, it seems like less so than their their generation. I, I feel like most people – it's not something I ever really hear people talk about anymore, uh, to be honest. Like, I just, I just mean in ordinary life. It's, you know, not really – I think I, I 2020 have, basically just uh, nukes the hard drives of everybody. Asked me about 9-11, and that was the first time I've had that happen to me in a long time. Who asked you? Uh, Dan- and I just explained that, of course, it was the Jews. <laughs> well, it's like, it's like I think part of the reason why people don't bring up 9-11 anymore is because we're, we're so fragmented as a culture. You know, in 2001, we were still kind of something, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the kind of, I the, know. The I remember the flag and the ceremonies and everybody getting on their knees and thanking the firefighters. Oh man, that was like the nurses. I mean, this, this stupid 2020 COVID thing, but, um, I think that was a sigh up. Um, well, if they were so thankful about the firefighters, uh, maybe they should have paid a little bit more attention to the fact that <laughs> the ones that were all dead now. Yeah, giving, giving a eyewitness testimony the day of to reporters or disappeared. Yeah. Interesting. Right. I don't know. Nine eleven. I mean, yeah, guys, Americans just are hypocrites. do your I mean, fucking research. It's you've had so much time. They, to as look long into as you, this. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but, it's like, but that's the point. No one really cares, and it's it's outlived its usefulness to the to the regime narrative, anyways. I mean, they yeah they hammered it for the for the Bush years, but they've dropped it too. Well, speaking of JFK, you yeah. remember when uh, Trump was supposed to like you know ooh unleash the Kraken or whatever and. Uh, unclassify the JFK stuff and then it was it was basically yeah, just a, out on that. a nothing uh yeah, and good lord what yeah. the, what happened i mean he also didn't pardon assange which honestly i didn't expect him to but 
just yet more. Oh, oh and by the way, he, he pardoned all of his Jewish gangster buddies. Um, so I, if people still believe in this guy, I mean, look, I know the options suck, but please look a little deeper into who this guy is hooked up with. Uh, I think we've we've had enough evidence to show that he, I don't know. I don't know if he ever really wanted to build the wall, but he sure as hell, in my opinion, didn't try. Are we going to get the Oliver Stone, Jeffrey Epstein film? <laughs> oh, you know, what's funny is that he mentions Harvey Weinstein a few times in his memoir. Like, you know, how it was it was good to work in the the It's kind of interesting, like how he wrote this memoir and, you know, published it and put it out there after because the Weinstein stuff happened. What? Like, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago. I don't remember. But um. You know, yeah, so like I, two years ago, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So maybe he wasn't fully aware of it. You know, who knows exactly when he was writing the memoir and, you know, during the parts that he mentions Weinstein, the Weinstein company and working with it. And, um, you know, he, he doesn't mention it other than to just say that, you know, it, it was a production company and, you know, he was able to do this or that with it. And, I, and that's basically it. But I was thinking when I read that, I was like, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, it, and that's why I think that um, the next, if he does another memoir, it, it could be even more interesting, honestly. You know, because it brings you through, it would bring you through the later part of his career and what's going on now. But you know, who knows I think that the, the documentaries that he's been doing is kind of like his, I, I, I think that he really thinks that, that it's like important work, you know, and that he, it's something that's worthwhile to do. And when you watch it, if you do watch the untold histories or, uh, you know, it's like a, I think it's a 10 part series. It might be 12 parts. It struck me as very Howard Zinn. He has, but the the thing is, uh, the 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 most interesting part of it wasn't released to Showtime. You can only get it on the DVD. He talks about the the like prologue where he talks. There's an episode that talks about 1898 and that you know what was going on with the Spanish American War, the real kind of beginning of our empire in a lot of ways, and then the interwar years. And those two episodes were not on Showtime, apparently, and they're the obviously honestly the most interesting episodes of the whole thing because that's really the root of what I kind of mentioned before where he has this kind of dissatisfaction with American foreign policy and what we've become because he has this really moralistic virtue idea of the American Republic slash empire um, which a lot of people do, which is what progressives do today, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your worldview, you know, it's like he, there's been this tug of war. The reason why, um, one of the reasons why America is so schizophrenic, there's many, but one of the reasons is because most people talk about Hamilton, this notion of Alexander Hamilton's notion of America versus the Jeffersonian notion of America, but there's really this um, Adam seeing, you know, John Adams and uh, John Quincy Adams notion of America and his, you know, the son of John Adams, the second president, John Quincy Adams, he has that famous quote about like America doesn't go, you know, in search of monsters to slay. Sorry, I butchered that quote, but you get the point. Um, and 
the the irony in that is that the Adamsian version of America is the prevailing mythos and philosophy in our technocratic, you know, uh, technocratic progressive hellscape that we find ourselves in. And it's because it took up the cause of abolition and the, you know, anti-slavery movement, and then now has morphed into progressivism and it can find its root in John Quincy Adams. And no one talks about that. Um, and I think that's the whole yeah. I mean, Stone, Stone is just one of these guys who still thinks in terms of nation and hasn't really gotten the message that we live in an economic zone. I think he's uh, probably never going to get it. I know? think you're right. You get but to a certain I, age. I think I he I also really dislikes the globalists and he also thinks American uh, East Coast elites are part of the people who are pushing that, which I generally agree with. Um, however, I do think he is probably like a little bit more on the democracy now bus than I think at this point any sane, even left-leaning person would realize that that's kind of a joke. But um, yeah, he does seem to be a little bit idealistic, perhaps. Yeah, and well, so he, it doesn't get that it's not that there was a perversion of so-called American values. It's that these are where this is where American values lead. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's like you can't, you just can't, um, you know, you can't square that peg. You know, it's like that's why, you know, that's why that's part of the reason why we're in the state that we're in is because you can't be a moralizing empire can you i mean not really you know um it, it it's like you can't embrace uh a foreign policy that is expansionary and has spheres of influence and colonizes or economically colonizes places uh and be like for democracy and for human rights but then also wage wars uh against Afghans or Iraqis or Vietnamese or whatever, um, you just can't do it and it makes sense. Um, so, you know, you either have to be an empire and make no bones about it, or you have to be kind of like a Pat Buchanan Republic, maybe, you know? Um, so I think Stone should go back and rewatch Natural Born Killers and maybe maybe think on it a little bit more. <laughs> well, it's like I'll, I'll read you a quote of of his from um, from the the untold history of the United States. He says, by the early 1920s, the America of Jefferson, Lincoln, Whitman, and young William Jennings Bryan had ceased to exist. And had been replaced by the world of McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, J. Edgar Hoover, and Woodrow Wilson. And I think he's right on that, but he doesn't really... I, I guess. I mean, I think framing everything within the context of one man is also a little bit silly. I get it's it's good for succinct communication of an idea, which is fine. But it's definitely more complicated and nuanced than that. I mean... I also think, uh, again, I, I come at it a little bit more from the economics point of view, 
And I think he comes at it a little bit more from the politics point of view. And they're both important, but it's not just the guy in Washington making the country. It is a big country. And I think money is really a huge driver of everything. And, uh, you know, what, what's his take on the role of technology? What's his take on the role of deindustrialization? I mean, he, he these are things he doesn't really have a, a concept of. And so I think it's great to make these, you know, nice little cute historian comments, but I think they're a little <laughs> bit simplistic. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying, it, but it, it's like he, he had, um, it's he basically just yeah i mean it he doesn't look at he doesn't look at um it, it, he'll make he'll the only thing he'll do is he'll make gestures towards the business interest like he does this in um in nixon and jfk to a bit to an extent um but it, it, he does it in in nixon for sure but it's it's subtle and it's not you know the main message at all at the movie it's more like you know um, Nick says that you know he needs to look at natural born killers again. And he's probably right with that, but it's almost like I would love uh, him to do a movie about Smedley Butler. You know, why not go that route? And he might be getting to something a little deeper. Yeah, that would be that'd be a good topic. Do you think he's done making dramas. Uh, I think he's he's supposed to make a, a film soon called White Lies, which has been initially. Toro and it's supposed to be like you know it doesn't sound that interesting it's like basically you know a marriage just falling apart you know who knows what's going to be <laughs> what that's going to be about it's probably something that he's he's looking back to his own life you know and trying to film that you know have another film about it you know about his parents divorce going you know sour but I'm not sure I don't know a whole lot about the details of that film but he's supposedly in production for that film <laughs> I think I think he'll continue to make documentaries, and uh, the Putin interviews are worthwhile. Uh, if you, oh yeah, they're on YouTube. You don't have to buy them or find a torrent or anything. Uh, it, and the thing I came away with, you know, I know some of you watched some of them. Uh, maybe somebody's watched all of it. There's four parts. They're each an hour long, and they're pretty intense. Honestly, uh, his interviews with uh, Putin, and it's over the course of a couple years, and you know it's interesting because you, you have a guy in stone that will go over to South America, talk, you know, he made one ridiculous one with uh, Hugo Chavez and man, does that not age? Well, you know, uh, you know, and he interviewed uh, Castro when Castro was alive. Yeah. And it's like, you, I feel like, well, dude, if you were doing that, then you should have made. Uh, why didn't you just when the Che bandwagon, Che Guevara was hot? Why didn't you make one on Che? You know, there's a good um, movie called The Motorcycle Diaries about Che Guevara's early life, um, which is pretty entertaining, a pretty interesting film. Um, but you know, if you want to counter signal the empire, you know, why not jump a hold of that um, commercial bandwagon and make one on Che? Well, maybe, maybe it's just been overdone. Maybe there's uh, been a couple in recent yeah. years. I mean, after after yeah. the motorcycle, yeah, there there was like a two part one. Uh, yeah, I did not watch it. I did. I did like the motorcycle diaries, though. It was all the rage with the <laughs> yuppies, though, when it came out. I remember seeing it in some art house theater. It was. It was like, 
yeah, I mean, that's a whole... maybe we'll do maybe we'll do Chase in time. I, that could that could be yeah, it could be fun content. That would be nice. I would because I, I I have some I have some thoughts on on Chase. So, but yeah, well, I mean, do you have any concluding thoughts on Oliver Stone? I I've said I, most I of like what I have to say. I would like to ask uh, one uh, one wrap up question, if I may. Uh, it's a uh, it's cliched to uh, Shoot ask your shot. for your favorite uh, Oliver Stone movie. I think we probably covered that. If you could have Oliver Stone remake one movie, since all that we can do is remakes uh, in the current uh, Hollywood in the current year, what movie would you have Oliver Stone remake? I want I want Wall Street three. Just just the same movie. <laughs> that's a good question. I don't I don't know. Harry, I, that's a good question. Um, maybe, poof. Maybe a a, a World War Two flick. Uh, redo Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> just change everything. <clears throat> Make it more I wanted to have him do uh, seven change days the ending. Yeah, <laughs> change the ending to the war, <laughs> or the ending to the to the actual yeah, story. Yeah. yeah, Tarantino. Tarantino did it. No, no, the ending to the war. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so wait, the question is like Stone remaking any movie? Yeah, I would like to see him redo oh, okay. uh, to do uh, Seven Days in May. The, uh, I think it, it was like a mid '60s uh, yeah. thriller that's about a, a uh, pretty American good. Coup. That's the the other good JFK film. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good. That's a pretty good movie. I like I liked Seven Days in May. Uh, I ah, shit Oliver Stone. Were you like, well, well the, I mean, what's he really good at? It's like he's good at big historical, contemporary historical. Really. Yeah, put I mean, political uh, deep kind of dives, I like mean, biopics. Kind of a fluke. It's kind of yeah. I would go yeah. with Algiers. Um, Algiers was a great movie, but maybe he could put his own spin on Algiers, the Battle of Algiers. Ooh, that's a good choice. That's a re- that's a really yeah. good choice. Uh, yeah, Battle of Algiers. Shit, man, put me on the spot here. That's an interesting question. Um, yeah. I'd second Battle of Algiers. Actually, that that's a pretty good one. Um, there was or great... you know what would be good is if he adapted. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily. I'd be probably pretty difficult, but Oliver Stone doing, you know, essentially the Gulag Archipelago would be would Ooh. be very interesting. Nice. Yeah, that would be. That would be. It's like imagine. Yeah, Oliver Stone doing a mini series, like not a movie, doing a mini series of. Uh, uh, such an instance work that would be great i actually i always had a, a i had a like when the hbo miniseries stuff was getting going and at the same time i was i was very interested in the kennedy assassination i always wanted to see a miniseries get made that's like kind of like the sopranos or something it's you know just like hard-edged uh, portrayal of, of Lyndon Lyndon Johnson. Just make it extremely dark, yeah. and maybe yeah. he could have been one to do that well. Yeah, and that would bridge the gap between JFK and Nixon. Yeah, you just make it a gangster movie that like an ex, like a six hour long gangster movie. 
and that was how uh, Martin Scorsese, Scorsese was supposed to do a Alexander the Great movie around the same time as uh, Oliver Stone. He never made it, but uh, it was going to be like a mafia hit, <laughs> mafia crime family type of, you know, type of movie, which is kind of <clears throat> like Dan Carlin does the that really old episode called the Ma- the Macedonia soap opera, <laughs> which is a good episode, by the way. It's like fucking 15 years ago or something. Well, uh, I think that's all I have to say on Stone. Um, yeah, is there uh who's got a, is, who's got is a there? Well, I don't have a pithy ending, but is there any up-and-coming filmmaker of his caliber that we think will be the future Oliver Stone? I'm going to track up-and-coming filmmakers. Yeah, I don't have an up-and-coming um, filmmaker, but I, I think this quote is good uh, from Oliver Stone. It, he basically uh, said when he was asked you know, uh, about his his life in, in film making and everything he said that you know you're either born crazy or you're born boring i don't know what to say really three minutes to the biggest battle of our professional lives all comes down to today either we heal as a team or we're gonna crumble inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished. We're in hell right now, gentlemen. Believe me. And we can stay here, get the shit kicked out of us, or we can fight our way back into the light. We can climb out of hell. One inch at a time. Now, I can't do it for you. I'm too old. I look around, I see these young faces, and I think, I mean, I made every wrong choice a middle-aged man can make. I, uh, I pissed away all my money, believe it or not. I chased off anyone who's ever loved me. And lately, I can't even stand the face I see in a mirror. You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from you. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of life. But you only learn that when you start losing stuff. You find out life's this game of inches. So is football. Because in either game, Life or football, the margin for error is so small. I mean, one half a step too late or too early, and you don't quite make it. One half second too slow, too fast, you don't quite catch it. The inches we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute, every second. On this team, we fight for that itch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that itch. We claw with our fingernails for that itch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, 
That's gonna make the fucking difference between winning and losing. Between living and dying. I'll tell you this, in any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's gonna win that inch. And I know if I'm gonna have any life anymore, it's because I'm still willing to fight and die for that itch. Because that's what living is. The six inches in front of your face. Now, I can't make you do it. You got to look at the guy next to you. Look into his eyes. Now, I think you're going to see a guy who will go that inch with you. You're going to see a guy who will sacrifice himself for this team because he knows when it comes down to it, you're going to do the same for him. That's a team, gentlemen. And either we heal now as a team or we will die as individuals. That's football, guys. That's all it is. Now, what are you going to do? What are you going to do?